This is Undaunted Life, a man's podcast. I'm your host, Kyle Thompson. Let's get into it. All right, guys, today we are talking about the migrant caravan. So this has come up in a lot of discussions here recently, and this is honestly something that I've been wanting to talk about for several weeks. I wanted to talk about it even before the midterm elections when this first kind of came up, but we didn't really know what it was going to be, right? So there were a lot of people, there were alarmists on both sides of the political aisle that were telling us it was going to be one thing or it was going to be another. And, you know, it's still basically working itself out, but it kind of came to a head over the weekend. But uh, just for those of you out there that maybe don't even know what I'm talking about, let me kind of bring you up to speed here a little bit, even though I'm pretty sure most of you are uh, aware of this. So about a month, month and a half ago, uh, which was, you know, before the midterm elections, we started seeing reports about a migrant caravan that was going to be coming up from Central America. So the timing of this migrant caravan was obviously very, very interesting. There were a lot of people, including myself, that figured that Sunday or Monday before the midterm elections the, on, on Tuesday, that we were going to be seeing these clashes with this migrant caravan and United States authorities. It didn't quite work out that way, but that was the idea. But this caravan includes people mainly from Honduras and Guatemala and El Salvador that are supposedly seeking political asylum. So as of right now, as the recording of this podcast, which is the day before it was released, the night before it was released, because I wanted to make sure we had the latest information on everything. There's around 6,000 migrants that are currently hanging out in Tijuana, Mexico. Uh, they're in a shelter there. They're not exactly hanging out. I didn't mean to be dismissive, but they're, they're in a shelter there in, in Mexico. And there are hundreds more that are joining them every single day. And, and in a nearby city of Mexicali, there's about 2,000 migrants that are chilling there. So uh, originally, there was much larger groups that were heading up through Central America and then through Mexico. But there have been you know different points where this caravan, where there were a lot of people that joined in. And then there was also times where we just saw a lesser number of people. Um, but one thing that I did find that was very interesting is the fact that there's, you know, at different times, there were close to 8,000 people that are wanting to get in through this caravan. Because what we heard from a lot of people, mainly on the political left, but some on the political right, was we don't need to be talking about this. We're making this too big of an issue. Trump's making this too big of an issue. By the time this thing actually happens, you know, there's going to be dozens or maybe a few hundred people that have come to the border. But this is a fairly significant uh, attempted migration uh, or, or invasion, however you decide to say it. But Around 8,000 people, that's pretty substantial. Um, but the thing is, is this did come to a head over the weekend because hundreds of these migrants tried to force their way into the country. Okay, So they rushed the border port of entry near uh, San Cedro, California. Uh, many of them were throwing rocks at Border Patrol agents. Uh, migrants were pushed back by Border Control. A lot of these officers uh, were shooting tear gas and pepper balls at these individuals. And so that got a ton of play in the media. No matter what side of the political aisle you're on, you got a lot of play on those different things. Uh, we've, we know more about tear gas now than, we know, than we've known about it at any other time in American history, right? Because it's been talked about so much. But... There's a lot of things that have happened with this caravan, and there's a lot of things that we need to talk about. But one of the things from the very beginning is I just wanted to clear up uh, some common misconceptions or misreportings that we're seeing in the media. And and I'm going to be picking on all forms of media here on both sides of the aisle, but I think there were there were just some common things that are put out there that are just absolutely false. Um, well, and I think the first, the I guess the best place to start would be just what political asylum even is. So a lot of people hear uh, asylum, that they're seeking asylum, and then what is that? How do you even get get that? How do you apply for that? Is that something you apply for online? It's just one of those things that no one really knows when you talk about it. So I wanted to clear that up for you guys. So essentially, you have to legally be defined as a refugee in order to apply for asylum in the United States of America, okay? And there are two standards by which you have to meet in order to for someone to be legally defined as a quote-unquote refugee. Okay. The first is that the asylum applicant must establish that they fear persecution in their home country. They're, they're going to be persecuted in some way, which goes to the second standard that they have to meet, which is that they must prove that they would be persecuted on account of one of five protected grounds. And those are nationality, political opinion, race, religion, or social group. So if you can prove those two things, then you can apply for asylum to the United States. Now, when you apply for asylum, asylum is not guaranteed. I, I feel like that's kind of a dub, but I did feel the need to point that out. But when you apply for asylum, it, like so as an example, if you're coming up to our southern border, you have to come through an official port of entry. Okay, so 
you cannot be crossing the desert illegally or having a coyote, uh, not not the, the animal, mind you, like the people that are paid uh, by cartels and, and other groups to actually ferry people across the border into the United States. You know, you can't have you know, be with a coyote and then go throw up your hands and be like, ah, no, I'm here. Uh, I wouldn't need asylum. I need to apply for asylum. That's not how it works. You're actively in the process of breaking the laws of the sovereign nation of the United States. No, you cannot apply for asylum at that time. That's not how it works. Um, another thing that we look at right now is, is refugees compose about one tenth of the total annual immigration to the United States. And again, we're talking about legal immigration. And so that's a much higher number than what people realize. 10% of every uh, legal immigrant that comes to the United States every year is one that would be considered a refugee. So uh, that's something that I wanted to kind of clear up. But here's some other misperceptions or things that have been misreported that I think are important to talk about. One is that the border patrol behavior is somehow different uh, or more heavy handed under the Trump administration. So <clears throat> the Trump administration has become a lightning rod for this issue because the entire time during the 2006 run up to the presidential election during the Republican primaries and obviously in the general election, you had Donald Trump making the wall and illegal immigration one of, uh, if not the biggest central issue of why you should vote for him. So obviously when the Trump administra- administration responds actively and some would consider violently, even though it's in defense, they consider this to be some sort of crazy new thing. But don't get it twisted. The same things that are happening at the border right now have been happening since we've been having these issues at the border. So essentially, every year of Barack Obama's presidency, remember the the left's favorite president of all time, other than JFK, they were using tear gas on these groups of migrants trying to storm borders at different times for the eight years prior to Trump getting into office. So tear gas and pepper balls and things like that were used under President Obama and the Obama administration regularly. It was done all the time. So this idea that Trump's doing something different or or more heavy handed is just ridiculous. Uh, Another misconception is that the caravan is mainly women and children. Because most of the images that we see, especially from mainstream media outlets, you see these these women that are crying and and these kids that that look hungry and they're dirty and all these different things. And yes, there are certainly women and children as a part of this group, but it is mainly young men, mainly men, like working aged, able bodied men. That is the overwhelming majority of the people that are in this migrant caravan. Okay, and I guess another misperception is that these migrants are coming to the United States to just get asylum. Because that's what we keep seeing, right? Is that there's a migrant caravan that is coming here because they're seeking asylum. But we've got to be realistic about this. This is about economic opportunity for the overwhelming majority of these people. Yes, are some of these people from El Salvador, are they are they seeing issues from MS-13, which is, you know, the birthplace of MS-13 is in El Salvador? Are they Are they having issues there? where they are in danger? Sure. But that's not even close to the majority of the people that are in this caravan. There are countless numbers of people that have been interviewed, not by right wing, you know, crazy people or anything like that, just by news outlets. And they're basically saying, look, I I can't even afford a living in my home country. That's why I'm coming to the United States. So I'm I'm not going to give you an opinion as to good or bad on that. But again, we keep being sold this thing that this is about asylum. When it's obviously about economic opportunity, an opportunity for a better life, whatever they constitute as better for most of these people, right? But the thing that's interesting about this is we have an easy proof here that this really isn't about asylum, that it's actually about economic opportunity. Because why else would these people not have just stopped and taken the asylum that was offered by the sovereign nation of Mexico? Because these people that were coming up from Honduras and Guatemala and El Salvador and some other places, when they got to Mexico, the Mexican government said, we will offer you asylum. And they said, nah, no thanks. We're going to keep heading north to go to the United States. Why? Is it because our asylum is better than Mexico's asylum? Because our application's easier? Right? I, I, I mean, it's just weird. So it's one of those things that just proves that for the majority of these people, it is not about asylum. And again, if this is about asylum, that these people feel like they are in danger from their home countries, what about these people that are waving the flags of their home country at our border? 
these people that are fleeing El Salvador because it's apparently so dangerous and 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 they're just really really scared, but they're they're waving their flag and and yelling things like "Yes, we can" as as they basically try to pound their way through the border. I mean, it's it's just kind of silly to me. I mean, you got that nimwit uh, that was just uh, elected to Congress in New York. What's her name? Uh, uh, Ocasio Cortez, that 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 person that was elected to the House, who doesn't really know anything about anything. Every time she opens her mouth, it's it's another blunder. But this week, she compared this the people that are trying to migrate here, this migrant caravan, to Jews during World War II. And, and so, what's funny about that is, I don't think Jews during World War II. Whenever they were being, you know, taken in by other countries, I don't think they would be waving the Nazi flag at the border of another country they were trying to immigrate to. Right? So stupid that someone would say that. Uh, Another misconception that I think has been thrown out there about this caravan is uh, that Trump or the Trump administration made up the phrase. This is kind of a a small one, but that, that they made up the phrase, the caravan or migrant caravan. The the thing is, is that phraseology has been used literally since George W. Bush was in office. That was the earliest article that I could find was where that was mentioned in terms of the caravan or migrant caravan. So Trump didn't make that up. Here's another thing that's ridiculous that Trump said. Trump said or, or implied that there were terrorists from the Middle East inside this caravan. Okay. So is it possible that there are Middle Eastern terrorists? that have infiltrated the caravan that's heading towards or is now at the southern border of the United States. Yes, it is possible. Is it likely? No. That was a really, really dumb thing for Donald Trump to say because he has no evidence for that. No evidence whatsoever that that there are Middle Eastern terrorists, that there's members of ISIS or Boko Haram that are hanging out with the caravan. But there is something that we see on the other side of the issue is that there are no criminals in this caravan. You'll see a lot of people on MSNBC or CNN or, or, or something like that. They'll say that there's no criminals in this caravan. There's no members of MS-13 in this caravan. There's no members of drug cartels that are in this caravan. But that doesn't seem to be the case either. Because there have been a lot of interviews with these people in the migrant caravan along the way, and they're admitting to there being known criminals that are walking with them. Now, <laughs> those people are probably going to have to pay for, for saying that because we have them on camera and we have their quotes online now. So they're probably going to have to pay if those people get caught. But the idea that there are no criminals in this caravan, that's just a bunch of uh, people that need help is kind of ridiculous as well. And so those are just some of the misperceptions I just wanted to clear up. And and there are certainly more, but those are the ones that I felt that were most pertinent. But the the big overarching thing here, guys, is that, again, this brings up the political debate about illegal immigration. And so it's something that I've been asked about uh, before and I've been asked about regularly. And actually, if you go back to episode 29 of this podcast, which was Q&A volume four, you know, I was asked about this. I think it was the, the second or third question that I answered on that podcast. And I kind of gave a lot of random thoughts. And so I would encourage you to go back to get more of the long form answer on these things. But uh, I talked about how people conflate uh, immigration and illegal immigration. People just kind of use those phrases or words interchangeably, which is completely inappropriate. Uh, I talked about the, the the lottery system for work visas here in the United States and how ridiculous that is. So these incredibly talented people that we should want to be able to stay here, we cannot handpick them or choose them to stay here. We have to put them in a lottery. And if they strike out of the lottery three times, they have to go back to their home country, which is absurd. We talked about DACA. We talked about uh, how I talked to DACA recipients and I've talked to people that come from illegal immigrant families and how it's such a really, it's a strange and convoluted situation. Uh, It's so hard to be black and white on DACA on the recipients. But the point I did make, and and I agree with this point even today here, months later after that recording, is just because you did not break the law doesn't necessarily mean that you can uh, keep the benefits of the law that your parents broke. And the example that I used at the time was if your parents had embezzled money and right before they were caught, um, they transferred all the money to you and then they were caught, right? So do you get to keep the money that your parents embezzled? I know that a lot of people would call that a, a false equivalency, but at least you get the point. 
Like, no, it's not these DACA recipients' fault that their parents Ill- broke the law of the United States and came here illegally. And maybe they, the only thing they ever know is the United States and English and all those different things, like whatever that may be. But can we really say that it's just completely okay that they should stay here? I mean, I, I think there's a debate, a d- debate to be had there. Um, I also talked about the fact that when we look to Scripture, when we look to different things, Jesus respected the law of the land and told us to do the same. And, and I think that was very important. Um, but there's also an important distinction here, and I, I pointed this out in that podcast as well, is that we don't base our laws off of the Bible. That uh, the Bible doesn't address illegal immigration directly. So we kind of have to surmise meaning in a lot of these different areas. And so that's the thing that's difficult, because there's a lot of things in the Bible that are very clear, that are not up for debate, but then there are other things that are absolutely debatable. And so where do we go on this illegal immigration issue? And so one thing I stopped short of doing, <clears throat> excuse me, one thing I, I stopped short of doing on episode 29 of this podcast was doing a deep dive into the arguments or the scriptures that could maybe give us some hints as to how we should act or how we should think about the illegal immigration issue. And so one thing I want to do on this podcast is go a little bit deeper. But the thing about it is, is um, I, I want this to be as cogent and as direct for you guys as possible. And so I, I, I want to bring to you this article that I found that I feel like did the best job of bringing the arguments together for this. Okay. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to be reading large portions of this article to you because I feel like it had a very good narrative to it, but I am going to post the the link to the article so that you can read it later in its entirety. But this was an article written by James R. Edwards Jr. back in 2009, and it was from the Center of Immigration Studies, and it's an article entitled A Biblical Perspective on Immigration Policy. So um, I will just say up front before I start reading, <coughs> excuse me again, uh, before I start reading, there are different parts of this uh, article that I don't necessarily agree with. There are different parts that I feel like were not described in a nuanced enough manner, but I feel like overall that Edwards did an amazing job here of describing uh, some, some different ways that we should be thinking about this. And so the article has three main focuses, and he goes into these three different areas. The first is the biblical role of civil government. The second is migration in scripture, so different examples of where we see migration in the scriptures. And the third is the responsibility of immigrants and would-be immigrants. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to go ahead and go to the article here. And like I said, I'm going to go ahead and read large swaths of it. uh, But I'm going to be leaving some sections out that were either just, you know, re-drilling the same point home or something like that. But I feel like this will be beneficial for all of us. So I'm going to go ahead and talk in the first section here and go into the first thing, which is the biblical role of civil government. So here we go. A central question must be answered before a biblically informed immigration policy may be determined. What role does God intend civil government to fulfill? After all, earthly government will be the mechanism through which public policy is formulated. Scripture clearly indicates that God charges civil authorities with preserving order, protecting citizens, and punishing wrongdoers. A prime passage is Romans 13 verses 1 through 7. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval, for he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is a servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed. Honor to whom honor is owed. The authority God delegates to civil government focuses on justice, not mercy, though this is not saying law should not be tempered by mercy. Biblical teachings of mercy generally apply to individual conduct, not to civil authorities. Further, standards of justice are not fully moral if they are not accompanied by judgment and punishment. These two elements, judgment and punishment, are integral or else justice is not just. 
In other words, civil government has been delegated authority to use force because government fulfills the role of protector of a specific body politic and the members of that political society. The reason the sword of justice has been delegated to earthly governments is for protection of a defined set of people who live under a government's jurisdiction. These points concerning civil government relate to immigration policy in several ways. One is the implication of national sovereignty, which includes the right to determine the grounds for admitting foreigners into the jurisdiction and on what conditions. It also leads to the deduction that immigration policy should principally benefit citizens, not harm citizens' well-being. Further, its implications include the prerogative of punishment and expulsion of those foreigners who do not abide by the civil laws, including immigration laws, as well as determining the criteria and conditions for foreigners' admission. These sorts of prudential judgments may change according to the prevailing situation. And now it's going to get into a little discussion about Old Testament principles. Even the passages of Scripture, most often cited by religious advocates of mass immigration and amnesty, plainly do not argue for open borders. Rather, these writings generally reflect equal justice under the law principles. Consider Leviticus chapter 19, verses 33 and 34. When a stranger sojourns with you in your land, you shall not do him wrong. You shall treat the stranger who sojourns with you as the native among you, and you shall love him as yourself. For you were strangers in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. Similarly, reads Exodus twenty-two twenty-one: You shall not wrong a sojourner or oppress him for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. Dr. Stephen Steinlight has noted that the Hebrew term for sojourn means temporary stay. A related term used in some scriptural translations is stranger. One Bible dictionary says, this word generally denotes a person from a foreign land residing in Palestine. Such persons enjoyed many privileges in common with the Jews, but still were separate from them. The relation of the Jews to strangers was regulated by special laws, and we see this in Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 23, 3, 24, verses 14 through 21, 25, 5, and 26, verses 10 through 13. This Bible dictionary defines two classes of aliens. The first, those who were temporary visitors who owned no landed property. And two, those who held permanent residence without becoming citizens. We see this in Leviticus 22:10 and Psalm 19:12. Both of these classes were to enjoy, under certain conditions, the same rights as other citizens, as seen in Leviticus 19:33 and 34 and Deuteronomy 10:19. Again, those rights amounted to equal standing under the law or have the benefit of the rule of law. Therefore, it is biblically inaccurate to incorporate automatically and dogmatically permanent immigration into every such term. Nor is it reasonable to jump to the conclusions many on the open border side do about related passages. These activists claim that such passages mandate that a society welcome any and all foreigners presenting themselves. No such passage state or imply overlooking illegitimately committed on the part of an alien in his entry. Nor is there any requirement of unlimited or uncontrollable admittance of those who are members of another nation or society. Assertions like those are, at a minimum, a wrong reading. Such verses actually indicate nothing about the grounds for alien admission to ancient Israel. Another theme stands out in the Bible. God regards borders as meaningful and important. See, for instance, Proverbs 22:28 and Proverbs 23, verses 10 and 11. Consider Deuteronomy 32, 8. When the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance, when he divided mankind, he fixed the borders of the people according to the number of the sons of God. Ezekiel 47 verses 13 through 23 details the promised land's boundaries. Numbers 34 verses 1 through 15 describes the borders the Lord established for each tribe of Israel. Deuteronomy 19:14 commands against moving a neighbor's tribe's boundary, stone marking a stone marking a given tribe of Israel's inheritance in the promised land. Another example appears three months after the Israelites left Egypt. The base of Mount Sinai was made off limits, see Exodus 19, verse 12, under penalty of death, until the people had been consecrated. Resident aliens who had children and settled in Israel, largely, largely because of Israel's failure to complete the mandate to remove them, were allowed private property in Israel. We see this in Ezekiel 47, verses 21 through 23. However, numerous times Israelites are warned against letting the aliens' pagan practices corrupt God-given moral standards. In short, the Old Testament teaches fair treatment of resident foreigners with certain requirements of the aliens related to religious and civil legal standards. It also instructs that aliens were to assimilate to the Hebrew culture. Boundaries are meaningful as well, 
and foreign presence among the Hebrews on several occasions was a curse. Few details of immigration procedures, standards, or other policies, policy prescriptions appear. To infer some open border or mass amnesty mandate from what actually appears in scripture is wrong. And now he's going to move on to a section a little bit talking about justice and mercy. Justice and mercy, along with a godly life, are fundamental principles of biblical conduct. Justice and mercy are complementary principles. They informed the thoughts of America's founders as they fashioned a government for the new nation. Government's wielding of a sword of justice is well established, biblically, as discussed earlier. Jesus did not challenge that principle, either toward Rome or other earthly authorities, nor did he question the legitimacy of a civil or religious government. When considering mercy as public policy, however, an important distinction must be drawn. Not every moral or ethical teaching in the Bible fits cleanly or applies equally to both individuals and societies. This is certainly true with justice and mercy. The case for civil authorities executing justice is much plainer, while their application of mercy in public policies is merely tempering, not predominant. Legislating mercy requires prudence, restraint, and good judgment. It is important to note another element of justice. God brings reward and punishment to human societies this side of eternity. Corporate entities such as civil societies have no existence except in here and now. Thus, they temporarily experience consequences affecting the whole. Scripture teaches that individuals are ultimately responsible for their personal sin or righteousness, but those personal moral dimensions affect the life of the body politic as well. An aspect of this principle involves God's empowering specific or expire empowering specific civil rulers over particular peoples. And we see this in Deuteronomy 32:8, Proverbs 8 verses 15 and 16 and Acts 17:26. Every ruler acts in accordance with God's sovereignty, knowingly or not. Though the reasons for certain political actions may not always be discernible to finite human beings, as we see in Proverbs 21.1, Proverbs 28.16, and Proverbs 29.26. Those who rule justly achieve a kind of temporal blessing for their body politic, as we see in Proverbs 21.15, Proverbs 29.4, and Proverbs 29.14. National character matters and has ramifications for a people. The nation characterized by righteousness pleases God, as we see in Proverbs 11, verses 10 and 11, Proverbs 14, 34, and Proverbs 16, 12. A compassionate act when exercised by an individual often becomes an, in, an injustice when compelled by civil government. The agents who are supposed to be the guardians of justice and protectors of the innocent, the least of these, the citizens or subjects of their jurisdiction. Thus, for example, writing into the U.S. Constitution a prohibition against cruel punishment, which is like the torture which European governments had instituted, such as the Spanish Inquisition or the English Star Chamber, is an appropriate adaptation of biblical standards of mercy, freeing thieves and batterers from facing imprisonment, restitution, and accountability to society is inappropriate and not merciful. How might this concept apply in U.S. immigration policy? Take amnesty, for example. Forgiving foreigners for entering the country illegally or staying when their visas expire might be seen as a merciful or compassionate thing, at least as its effects on people gaining legal status without having to suffer the consequences the law otherwise would require of them. However, the government as agent has acted in such a way that coerces innocent citizens and law-abiding immigrants to suffer the consequences. So guys, I know that first section was a little long, but again, that was basically looking at the biblical role of civil government. So right now we're going to get into the second main focus of this, of this article, which is migration as described in scripture. And this will be much more brief than the last, the last section. So here we go talking about migration in the Bible. Back to the article. While movement of people spans the Old Testament from Adam to Abraham, Abraham to Moses to Ruth, no immigration policy, the terms and conditions for admission or expulsion of aliens, is spelled out. Moreover, Scripture provides no uniform immigration policy mandate intended to apply to every body politic throughout human history. Each instance of migration in the Old Testament is different. These movements span hundreds of years and diverse conditions. It would be foolish to assert an immigration policy for the United States based on such passages. The best Christians can do today is to identify these principles that aptly fit their particular society's circumstances. God himself led certain individuals or households to move to different locations. Each move recorded in Scripture helped fulfill his purpose in biblical history. None appears to have involved illegality. Each segment of the biblical narrative and the people in that historical line have a unique, specific purpose leading toward a common uh, a coming of the Messiah and the subsequent spread of the gospel. 
more routine human movement in biblical times was governed by each particular destination. City-states had walls and gates and thereby controlled entry and exit. Much migration was temporary or nomadic. For example, traders, shepherds, and other traversed open spaces. Sojourners would move from location to location in different city-states and kingdoms to ply their trades and made a living on the move. Craftsmen would spend periods away from home, hiring themselves out. At all times, the local government or rulers held ultimate control over admission, expulsion, and the terms of stay. As an example, see Nehemiah 13, verses 15 through 22. Then here it gets into a section about Moses and some of the things that he did, talking to the Amorite king and his traveling to Edom, and a few things here talking about the New Testament, but we'll go ahead and get back into the article here. Caesar Augustus ordered a census, and we see this in Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. Thus, people like Mary and Joseph traveled to the hometown of their lineage. The couple later fled to Egypt for protection against King Herod, as we discussed below. The Jewish religious leaders persecuted followers of Jesus, recorded in the first several chapters of Acts. Acts chapter 8, verses 1 through 3, relates that the crackdown in Jerusalem scattered believers to the other parts of Judea and Samaria. After Saul, the Pharisee persecutor, became Paul the Apostle of Christ, he traveled throughout the Mediterranean region from Jerusalem to Damascus to Crete to Athens to Rome. His missionary journeys were integral in spreading the faith, planting and growing churches. Acts 21 and 22 record that Paul was a Roman citizen by birth, and he relied on the rights of Roman of, of being a Roman, which is especially seen in Acts 22, verses 25 through 29. The point here is that those subject to Roman rule, citizen or not, Christian or otherwise, benefited in tangible ways, such as lawful travel within the empire and temporal citizen serve, citizenship served both God's and early Christians' interests, affordable individuals such as Paul, certain rights, civil rights, and privileges. Despite a less than perfect or moral civil authority, Christians of the early church rendered under Caesar the things that were Caesar's. There is no evidence here that early Christians broke any laws when crossing borders. And now it's going to talk a little bit about humanitarian migration. Some people mistake examples of fleeing persecution in particular instances in the lives of biblical characters with a broad mandate of open borders where none exists. These examples most closely match modern refugee and asylum policies. Today, nations will accept foreigners as temporary or permanent residents depending on the circumstances because of warfare, natural disasters, or political or religious persecution in their homelands that makes it impossible for these people to continue residing there without exceptional danger. Perhaps the most notable example comes in the Mary and Joseph's flight to Egypt. They fled King Herod's murderous decree to kill all male Hebrew children under the age of two, after the Magi from the east failed to inform him who and where Jesus was. Matthew chapter 2, verses 16 through 21, recounts this event in the life of a very young Jesus. An angel warned Joseph of the danger and specified Egypt as the family's destination. Verse 15 gives a scriptural reason for that destination, which was the fulfillment of prophecy pertaining to the Messiah. Misguided modern mis misinterpretation notwithstanding, this act did not constitute illegal immigration. Nothing indicates that the Holy Family broke an Egyptian law. Their intent was finding temporary humanitarian relief. They stayed only until they could return to Israel. Therefore, instances of migration chronicled in Scripture provide no sanction for open borders. These movements of people across territories generally deferred to the national sovereignty of the local authorities regarding whether or not to grant entrance. The theme given the Hebrews of fairly treating aliens and sojourners resembled equal justice under the law more than an admonition to take all comers without conditions. Even humanitarian migration, fleeing persecution as an example, did not trump national sovereignty as preserving law and order even as it relates to immigration is a duty of the governing authorities and a manifestation of general blessing under common grace of all lawful residents and jurisdiction. Additionally, particular movement on the part of certain individuals and of the Hebrew people to the promised land were elements of God's carrying out his will through the affairs of men. They should not be generalized beyond their context of time, place, and actors. Absent perfectly clear direction by God, such as leading his chosen people by pillars of cloud and fire, believers after the age of Christ should default to immigration standards that particular states may enact within their delegated sovereignty. That would seem to be the, mo to be the most in keeping with the will of God, whose character includes a quality of order. So that's the second section there, guys, talking about the migration patterns within Scripture. And now we're going to get into the last section, which is talking about the immigrant's responsibility or the responsibility of would-be immigrants. So here we go. 
Advocates for illegal immigrants like to blur moral lines. They offer up illegal aliens who purport to be Christians. Yet, wrapping their law-breaking in Christian terms stands at odds with the clearer teachings of Scripture. It becomes all the more curious when a supposed Christian justification overlooks conduct that might be regarded as inconsistent with biblical standards. <clears throat> For example, purported Christian illegal aliens set the poor example of a criminal life, often abandon their young children to grow up without parents' daily guidance, and leave their community back home without the influence of salt and light. Thus, what is the biblical position relating to those who would be immigrants? Have they the right to impose themselves on a sovereign nation, an established society? First, the biblical standard for immigrants is that they obey the law of the nation, the general standard for all discussed above. Obviously, this relates to abiding by the nation's decision whether or not to admit an alien and on what terms and conditions. It also includes an assimilationist ethic. Foreigners duly admitted into their particular society are expected to assimilate, not impose their own customs, language, etc., and remake the receiving society in their own image. Second, forcing oneself on an existing nation is both unjust and unjustifiable. In other words, illegal immigration is morally wrong. Law-breaking aliens bear the moral responsibility for their unlawful actions. Even desperate circumstances do not justify illegal immigration. Proverbs 6, verses 30 and 31 says, People do not despise a thief if he steals to satisfy his appetite when he is hungry. But if he is caught, he will pay sevenfold, and he will, and he will give all the goods of his house. The New International Version translates the term as hunger and starving. Here, a man steals food to keep from starving. Everyone can understand that desperation that led to his law-breaking. But, despite his sympathetic circumstances, the fact remains that he stole. He took what belonged to somebody else. Caught for stealing, he now faces punishment. He has to make restitution, even to the point of his own bankruptcy. Obeying a nation's immigration laws, this applies to employers as well as aliens, is a practical application of two paramount commandments, loving God and one's neighbor. We see this in Matthew 22, verses 37 through 40, Mark 12, 29 through 31 as well. It also follows Christ's directive to render unto Caesar matters in the temporal, in the temporal just government's jurisdiction, as we see in Mark 12, 17 and Luke 20, 25. Such obedience shows one's trust in God's promised provision and faith in his ability to meet one's needs. Jesus taught such contentment and trust in God in the Sermon on the Mount, as we see in Matthew 6, 25 through 34, and 7, 9 through 11, and elsewhere, Matthew 19, 29 through 30, and Luke 12, 22 through 34. Almost no illegal aliens to the United States are fleeing starvation or physical danger. A Pew study found that most illegal aliens quit a job in their home country in order to break U.S. immigration laws merely to take more money here. Thus, illegal immigration is at its core principally a matter of greed and envy on aliens' parts. Foreign lawbreakers' envy towards Americans' material and political blessings may bring upon themselves eternal consequences. It is through this craving, love of money, that have some wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs, as we see in 1 Timothy 6, verse 10. Violating immigration laws, just as violating other civil laws, manifests one's failure to trust God to meet his people's needs. Illegal aliens and their activists must ask themselves what the cost of such sin is worth to their souls. <clears throat> For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his life? Jesus asks in Mark 8, 36. The NIV translates the word as soul instead of life. Thus, breaking immigration law flouts God's provision for each person's well-being, because civil authorities made those laws and, as seen earlier, those authorities act under God's delegated authority. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler, as we see in 1 Peter 4.15. In context, this passage means Christians should only suffer in righteousness for the cause of Christ, not as those who disobey civil laws that should be accorded with. Except in the rarest of instances, disobedience of duly adopted laws therefore dishonors God. It displays hatred towards one's neighbor. 1 John 5.20 says, For he who does not love his brother, whom he has, who he has seen, cannot love God, whom he has not seen. In the context of members of a nation, one's neighbors are those people who share one's citizenship, patriotic allegiance, and sacred duty to the body politic. Okay, so that wraps up the third section here. So again, they were talking about three main things. The first being the biblical role of civil government. The second being migration in scripture. And the third being the responsibility of immigrants and would-be immigrants. And we're going to get into his conclusion here. So here we go. 
We may fairly conclude that it displays questionable judgment to rigidly construct an immigration policy for 21st century America based on a handful of scripture passages taken out of context or from particular instances of migration spanning centuries, vastly different nations and kingdoms, wholly different circumstances, etc., found in scripture. Rather, carefully discerning applicable principles better fits the situation. Further, obeying civil laws is the normative, biblical imperative for Christians, as discussed above. National sovereignty is part of the authority God has delegated to civil authorities. Whatever the immigration laws of a particular nation, determining the policies of how many immigrants to admit and the terms and conditions applying to immigrants are the pejorative of the national body. Each society may set or change its nation's immigration laws. Those decisions rest within the society, and outsiders have no legitimate voice in that exercise of national sovereignty. The reformer and statesman John Calvin wrote of the sovereignty of the state. The duty of its lawful authorities is to dictate the course of justice and the sword. This extends to individual crossing sovereign borders. And here's a quote from John Calvin. If they, civil authorities, ought to be the guardians and defenders of the laws, they should also overthrow the efforts of all whose offenses corrupt the disciplines of the laws. For it makes no difference whether it be king or the lowest of the common folk who invades a foreign country in which he has no right and harries it as an enemy. All such must equally be considered as robbers and punished accordingly. Though varying in manner in different jurisdictions, Calvin noted that civil laws have the same general end in mind, including such offenses as murder, theft, and false witness. But they, states, do not agree on the manner of punishment, nor is this either necessary or expedient. There is a country which, unless it deals cruelly with murderers by way of horrible examples, must immediately perish from slaughters and robberies. There is a century which demands that the harshness of penalties be increased. There is a nation inclined to a particular vice, unless it be most sharply repressed. In other words, different places rightfully may craft laws that deal with their unique circumstances of time, place, and character. This is a matter of the sovereignty delegated by heaven. The immigration laws of the United States have been adopted through lawful, legitimate, democratic processes. None of us may agree with every policy represented in the law on the books, and many of us might advocate certain changes in U.S. immigration law. But this nation is blessed with a Republican process for making laws. There is a just and fair way through the political process to modify statutes. Thus, the will of the Congress, as manifested in U.S. laws, represents the collective wisdom of the people's representatives and the will of the American people as a whole as it is informed lawsmakers' decisions throughout the political process. This is how the consent of the governed, a solemn principle in American life, operates, as messy and unsatisfying as that might be at times. As for mass amnesty, by legalizing millions of illegal immigrants, governments do not show mercy. Rather, it obligates its citizens to bear the injustices aliens have committed against the body politic, as discussed earlier. This fact stands all the clearer in light of Calvin's point above. Okay, guys, so so that's the last part I'm going to be reading there. And, and again, that may have seemed like a lot that I read just there, but there were huge sections that I skipped. So again, I wanted to include the entire article so you didn't think I was taking anything out of context. And I tried to make it flow as much as possible, but obviously I did take some things out for a narrative focus. But so, so what do we do with all this, right? So I kind of walk you through a lot of arguments and I, I didn't really give a lot of uh, my opinion there because I, I read most of the parts that I agreed with. So you can just assume that I agree with the majority of that. And then I checked out most of the, the things that were said there, but then we see what's happening in the news. Uh, we have our own opinions about illegal immigration, because again, this is a very specific thing happening within the confines of illegal immigration or the immigration policies of the United States, this migrant caravan. But there's so many things that come up. I mean, just months ago, we were talking about, you know, kids being separated from their parents at the border and how that was done under Clinton and under Bush and under Obama. And then all of a sudden it was this big thing under Trump. And, you know, how is it being presented? And is it biblical? And is it loving our neighbor and blah, blah, blah. But I think there are three things that we should be able to look at here uh, and focus on. And, and these are kind of three thoughts that I have in conclusion to the thing that we're talking about here with the migrant caravan. The first is that the migrant caravan is the product of a broken world. I mean, in a pre-Genesis 3 world, we don't have a caravan like this because we wouldn't have sin. We wouldn't have pain. We wouldn't have hunger. We wouldn't have a need for asylum. We wouldn't have corrupt governments or crappy governments or crappy countries 
or crappy laws. We wouldn't have any of these things. So as if we needed another example of the sin that's around us or the sin nature of the people around us, this migrant caravan just hits us right square in the face. We live in a broken world, guys. That's not excusing anything or or telling you that you should lean left or right on this issue. It's just, man, here, here we are sitting in this broken world and Jesus can't come soon enough. And the second thought is that the United States doesn't use the Bible as its filter for public policy. Okay? I talked about that earlier, but this is where I get really crossways with a lot of evangelicals. Is, uh, yes, the United States and the founders founded this country, the greatest country in the history of countries, right? On biblical principles. Does that mean all of them were evangelicals, that all of them were uh, believers in Jesus Christ and they acted it out in their everyday lives? No, because there are people mainly on the left or mainly secularists that love to say that these these people did not use Christian principles because maybe they didn't act it out in their own life. Or Ben Franklin had a bunch of paramours and so he's, he wasn't a Christian or things like that. But it, it, we, are, we were so clearly founded using these principles. But the United States currently, in 2018, going on 2019, we don't use the Bible as our filter. Can you imagine if a big-time politician, so like Trump or any of the House majority or minority leaders or, or Senate majority or minority leaders or anyone running for president from the Democratic side of the ticket in 2020, do we really think we would take those people seriously if they started quoting Scripture? Even as a Christian, I think that would be really, really awesome. But I'm, I'm, when I say we, I mean the collective we. American citizens. Again, we're, we're living in a post-Christian culture. Like, Christendom is out of the spotlight. So, if someone were to say, hey, this is what I think we should do on taxation, or this is what I think we should do on uh, corporate borrowing, this is what I think we should do on, uh, you know, funding elections, or whatever the thing might be within law, like, sentencing and, you know, drug laws and all the, all the different examples that I'm trying to come up with off the top of my head. If someone were to quote the Bible and say they believed one way or the other, the United States public would not be down with that. We just don't use the Bible. And again, look at you as a Christian. We talk about this all the time. We have more access to the Bible now than we have in any time in recorded history. And evangelicals read their Bible less often than any time that we've seen since we've been like looking at such things, right? So this expectation that we should be able to take a scripture from the Bible or look at a scripture that's on our coffee cup or on our dopey shirt or something like that, and all of a sudden glean massive policy from it is a little bit short-sighted. I think think the genie's super out of the bottle on that one. I'm not saying that we shouldn't have done that from the beginning. I'm saying we pretty much can't do that now. It'd be almost impossible to go back. And the last thought I have for you guys to consider is our call as Christians to love one another doesn't begin and or end with American immigration policy. You do not need a more left-leaning immigration policy or a more right-leaning immigration policy to love one another, to love your neighbor as yourself, any of those things. And it goes back to the first point about the migrant caravan being a product of a broken world. You can completely disagree with immigration policy of the United States. You can believe that we need to build the wall. You can believe that we need to <clears throat> put the army on the southern border. Border, And anyone that comes within 100 yards of the border, that we shoot them. Whatever your thing might be that you believe. But nothing like that should stop you from caring for these people. From giving to organizations that are going down and caring for these people. One thing that's happening right now in Tijuana and Mexicali is they are running out of money. They're running out of resources. Because the Mexican government wasn't prepared for this. Let's not exactly pretend like the Mexican government or the country as a whole has a lot of things figured out. Well, they know how to make resorts and soccer players and boxers, and that's about it. They don't do much else particularly well in that country. Let's just be real. But they're running out of resources. They need our resources. They need resources from Christians around the globe. They need time. They need volunteers. And so believe what you want to believe about U.S. immigration policy. but. If you ever come eyeball to eyeball with a refugee or someone seeking asylum, or you find an opportunity where you can't assist these people, I would ask you to consider that outside of your political leanings. I mean, seriously, consider outside of your political leanings to do those things. And so, excuse me, guys, this is a huge issue. This is something that we need to be praying about. This is something that 
I gave you a lot of scriptural references today. Go and dig into those things and check those things out. Have conversations with people, especially people that disagree with you. Don't just go into some, you know, echo chamber where you're talking to people that only agree with you and only watch the news stations you watch and read the articles you read and listen to the podcasts you listen to. Get some different opinions on this. This is an incredibly crazy issue. It's not super cut and dry in just about any way, shape, or form. And so allow me to encourage you guys to do that as we're going to continually run into these situations where we need to have this conversation. All right, guys, before we let you out of here, we're going to do a quick resilience boost. As you know, by now, we are a men's ministry and our mission is cultivating manly resilience. And specifically, we do that by providing content that forges spiritual, mental, and physical toughness. So today we're going to work on mental resilience. And I'm going to go ahead and just give you that article to read because guys, it's going to take you a while. It's a a fairly lengthy article. And yes, I know I always challenge you guys to read. You know why? Because you should freaking be reading. All right. So get used to it. You're going to hear it all the time on this podcast. So again, it's a biblical perspective on immigration policy. It's the long-form version of what I shared with you a little bit earlier. All right, guys, thanks so much for listening to the podcast. As always, we would like for you to subscribe on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Google Play and refer your friends to listen and share this on social media. If you use the hashtag UndauntedLife, we will be sure to find your post and give it a thumbs up. Guys, if we deserve a five-star review, please give us a five-star review of this podcast and make sure you leave two or three sentences that let us know why you like the content. I'm currently booking speaking engagements for the entirety of 2019. So if you want me to come speak to your company, to your team, to your camp, to your men's event, hit me up on email info at undaunted.life, info at undaunted.life. The website is www.undaunted.life and you can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at undauntedlife or facebook.com backslash undauntedlife. Check out our free devotionals on the YouVersion Bible app. Just search Undaunted Life under plans. And as always, we want to thank the band August Burns Red for allowing us to use their entire music library for our content. The intro-outro track on this podcast is their song King of Sorrow, which is off their latest record entitled Phantom Anthem. The links to all of this are in the description. I'm your host, Kyle Thompson. Remember, keep cultivating manly resilience, keep forging spiritual, mental, and physical toughness, keep seeking the Lion of Judah.